several years ago, actually more than several, when I first, Tanya and I first joined Emmanuel Baptist Church, uh, and then some months after that when I was brought on board as one of the elders, Pastor Thomas had been preaching through the Gospel of Matthew, and he turned that over to me. Well, I was preaching through that wonderful gospel, and then I came to the, the Olivet Discourse, and providentially I was not prepared uh, for that specific discourse because I was at the time currently transitioning in between different eschatological beliefs, and so um, I was not uh, firmly rooted in that, and so I uh, conferred with Pastor Thomas and at the time Pastor Al and, and we decided that we would come and revisit that at a later date. Well, Pastor Thomas has done so last month and we decided among the elders that we would continue to finish this wonderful gospel so it won't be a gospel left unfinished here at Emmanuel Baptist Church. And so this morning I'm continuing uh, where Pastor Thomas left off. He left off with the Lord's Supper uh, last Lord's Day. Turn with me, if you will, to Matthew chapter 26. We're going to be looking at the Garden of Gethsemane this morning. And so let's read the Word of God, and we will start in verse 36 and read down through verse 46. Let's hear the Word of the living God. Then Jesus went with them to a place called Gethsemane. And he said to his disciples, Sit here while I go over there and pray. And taking with him Peter and the two sons of Zebedee, he began to be sorrowful and troubled. And then he said to them, My soul is very sorrowful, even to death. Remain here and watch with me. And going a little farther, he fell on his face and prayed, saying, My father, if it be possible, let this cup pass from me. Nevertheless, not as I will, but as you will. And he came to the disciples and found them sleeping. And he said to Peter, So, could you not watch with me one hour? Watch and pray that you may not enter into temptation. The spirit indeed is willing, but the flesh is weak. Again, for the second time, he went away and prayed. My father, if this cannot pass unless I drink it, your will be done. And again he came and found them sleeping, for their eyes were heavy. So, leaving them again, he went away and prayed for the third time, saying the same words again. Then he came to the disciples and said to them, Sleep and take your rest later on. See, the hour is at hand. And the Son of Man is betrayed into the hands of sinners. Rise, let us be going. See, my betrayer is at hand. This is the word of the living God. May he grant us ears to hear and hearts to obey. Let's pray. Holy Father, this is your word. And unless you send it forth by the power of your Holy Spirit, it will fall on deaf ears. It will fall on hard hearts. It will fall on blind eyes. So, Father, we pray that you would bless us with the power of your Spirit here today. That you would grant us all ears to hear. That we would have eyes to see the, the altogether loveliness of Christ. And that we would have hearts willingly and joyfully ready to obey. And would you do this for your glory and for the sake of your church as we magnify Christ, for it's in his name we pray. Amen. Amen. Well, I know we just read this passage, but I would like to read it again. This time, I'm going to read from a harmony of the four Gospels. Now, I know here at Emmanuel Baptist Church, we're used to hearing and, and using the ESV. Uh, this is from the NIV version, but it takes the four gospel accounts and it puts them together. I want you to see 
a more in-depth picture of this scene. This will, this will give you, it, it'll be hard for you to flip back and forth uh, if you were trying to get this picture. So I want to give you this picture uh, as it is with the four Gospels put together. So you won't be able to follow along because it's going to be going back and forth between the four Gospels. And of course it picks up in John 18 right after Christ has finished his high priestly prayer in John chapter 17. When he had finished praying, Jesus left with his disciples and crossed the Kidron Valley. On the other side, there was an olive grove called Gethsemane. And Jesus said to his disciples, Sit here while I go over there and pray. He took Peter, James, and John along with him. And he began to be deeply distressed and sorrowful and troubled. Then he said to them, My soul is overwhelmed with sorrow to the point of death. Stay here and keep watch with me. Pray that you will not fall into temptation. Going a little farther, about a stone's throw beyond them, he fell with his face to the ground and prayed that if possible, the hour might pass from him. Abba, Father, he said, everything is possible for you. Father, if you are willing, take this cup from me. Yet not my will, but yours be done. An angel from heaven appeared to him and strengthened him. And being in anguish, he prayed more earnestly. And his sweat was like drops of blood falling to the ground. When he rose from prayer and went back to the disciples, he found them asleep, exhausted from sorrow. Simon, he said to Peter, are you asleep? Could you not keep watch with me? For one hour? Watch and pray so that you will not fall into temptation. The spirit is willing, but the body is weak. Once more he went away and prayed the same thing. My father, if it is not possible for this cup to be taken away unless I drink it, may your will be done. When he came back, he again found them sleeping because their eyes were heavy. They did not know what to say to him. So he left them and went away once more and prayed the third time, saying the same thing. Then he returned to the disciples and he said to them, Are you still sleeping and resting? Enough. The hour has come. Look, the Son of Man is betrayed into the hands of sinners. Rise, let us go. Here comes my betrayer gives us a little bit more in-depth picture of that garden scene, that garden of Gethsemane. The late Anglican Bishop J.C. Ryle wrote of this passage, The verses we have now read describe what is commonly called Christ's agony at Gethsemane. It is a passage which undoubtedly contains deep and mysterious things. We ought to read it with reverence and wonder. For there is much in it which we cannot fully comprehend. The context of this passage, Jesus had just celebrated his his the Lord's uh, excuse me the Passover, the last Passover that he would celebrate on this earth. He celebrated the Passover with his disciples, during which time he had instituted what we call now the the ordinance of the Lord's Supper. Now, some may argue that his discourse from John's gospel took place in the upper room. They call it the upper room discourse. Some would argue that he gave this discourse while they were en route from Jerusalem across the Kidron Valley up to the Mount of Olives. And sometime in that time, Christ prayed the high priestly prayer recorded in John chapter 17. But in Matthew, he records as they were going, you know, he says, and they sung a hymn and went out. If we go back to uh, verse uh, 31, actually 30, it said, and when they had sung a hymn, this is, of course, after he instituted the Lord's Supper, when they were celebrating the Passover meal, they went out to the Mount of Olives. Then Jesus said to them, you will all fall away because of me this night. For it is written, I will strike the shepherd and the, and the sheep of the flock will be scattered. But after I am raised up, I will go before you to Galilee. 
Peter answered him, Though they all fall away because of you, I will never fall away. You can hear Peter's, Peter's normal, boisterous self in this. Though they all fall away, I will never fall away, declares Peter. Jesus said to him, Truly I tell you, this very night, not, not I tell you this very night, but I tell you this very night, before the rooster crows, you will deny me three times. And that's going to be significant, I think, in the passage we're considering today. That's also significant in John chapter 21. Peter said to him, I don't believe you. Right? Peter keeps arguing. Peter said to him, even if I must die with you, I will not deny you. And of course, all the disciples said the same thing. You know, this is not the first time. Now, this is all the context of where we're, where we're going with this passage. This, this is going to tie in with our passage. But this is not the first time old Peter has been rash and, and rebuked, as it were, the Lord Jesus or disagreed with what Jesus said, or disagreed with what Jesus was doing, right? Turn with me to Matthew 16. Matthew chapter 16. You, you're familiar with this. This is where Jesus is going to tell of His upcoming death. Starting in verse uh, 21 of chapter 16. From that time, Jesus began to show His disciples that he must go to Jerusalem and suffer many things from the elders and chief priests and scribes and be killed and on the third day be raised. And Peter took him aside. Okay, here, here you go. Peter, he's the leader, right? He's the, 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 the so-called mouthpiece for the disciples. And Peter took him aside and began to rebuke him, saying, Far be it from you, Lord, this shall never happen to you. But he turned and said to Peter, Get behind me, Satan. You are a hindrance to me, for you are not setting your mind on the things of God, but on the things of man. What a rebuke. You know, Peter was the one that was trying to rebuke the Lord. And the Lord just turns and looks right at Peter and says to Peter, Get behind me, Satan. Realizing that Satan was wanting to sift Peter. Satan was wanting to have his way with Peter. Satan was making Peter look at the things of man rather than at the things of God. And we will see that again as he says this. If, they, if I have to die with you, I'm not going to forsake you. Turn with me to John chapter 13. John chapter 13. Here's Christ doing something that Peter is going to disagree with vehemently. In, I would say, a mock humility. Let's look at verses 5 through 9. This is Jesus. He, he, well, let's go back up. Where he laid aside his outer garments in verse 4 and taking a towel, tied it around his waist, verse 5. Then he poured water into a basin and began to wash the disciples' feet and to wipe them with the towel that was wrapped around him. Okay, now we know from, from studying this many times that the job of washing people's feet was the job of the lowest ranking slave in the house. So Peter is going to rebuke the Lord. The one who thought he could pull Christ aside and rebuke him is now going to feign humility by saying, Here, Lord, do you wash my feet? Jesus answered him, What I am doing you do not understand now, but afterward you will understand. Verse 8, Peter said to him, You shall never wash my feet. Jesus is doing something here that is very significant. He is trying to teach his disciples humility. Because guess what? If you look just before that, what are they doing? They're arguing about who is the greatest. Which disciple is the best disciple? 
And Jesus wants to show them it's not about your position of, of greatness in the kingdom of God. It's about being a servant. It's about serving others. And so he does this, not as an ordinance, but as an example to teach his disciples humility, to stop their argument about their greatness. And Peter, with his feigned humility, says, Oh no, Lord, you're the master. You're the Christ, the son of the living God. You're never going to wash my feet. You're not that low. And Jesus then in turn says, Peter, if I don't wash you, you have no part in me. And we know the significance of that. Jesus is talking about not the actual foot washing, but talking about the spiritual cleansing. And so Peter has a, has a habit of countering Christ. And disagreeing with what Christ is saying or, or doing. And so it's no surprise here that, that Peter is, is telling Christ, even if I have to die with you, I will not forsake you. Peter's full of himself. He still doesn't understand the weakness of the flesh. He hasn't learned his lesson yet. You would have think you would have learned it on the lake, right? If it is you, Lord... Tell me, come walk on the water to you. Save me! But he hadn't learned his lesson yet. He hadn't learned it. This is about Christ, not about Peter. This is about Christ's mission, not about Peter's desires. Peter has, right now, the same beliefs that the rest of the Jews have concerning the Messiah. The Messiah is going to come, <coughs> excuse me, and rescue us from the Romans. He's going to get us out from under the heel of the Romans. He's going to set up an earthly kingdom. And we're going to reign with him. That's why the Jews were one of the reasons they were rejecting Christ. Because he was not doing what they thought the Messiah was supposed to come to do. Right? I mean, the Messiah was the, the, the root of David. The root of Jesse. A king. Peter didn't understand that. How mistaken they all were because it was from the death grip of sin that Christ came to rescue them, not from the Romans. And so that's, that's the context. They're en route to the garden. They're, they're building up to, to what we're going to see in our passage here today in the garden of Gethsemane. Also keep in mind in context, while either they were in the upper room or while they were on the way, you remember Jesus' famous discourse? He's telling them that he must go away. They can't go where he's going. And then he also tells them what? Let not your hearts be troubled. And we will see in this passage where they didn't listen. Luke tells us they were asleep. Why? Because they were exhausted. Why? Because they were sorrowful. Rather than taking Jesus' words to heart, let not your hearts be troubled. They let their hearts be troubled. They, they didn't get it yet. They weren't <clears throat> completely sold out to Christ just yet. They, they, they weren't where they needed to be spiritually. That will take place after, of course, the resurrection. It is my hope and prayer that we will leave here today with a better understanding of what Christ suffered in the garden. I pray that we will also leave here today with a greater desire to pour out our hearts to our Heavenly Father and a much stronger and total reliance upon Him for grace and strength and mercy and that we will truly desire to see His will done here on earth as it is in heaven to His eternal praise and glory. I would like for us to consider three things in this passage. A. Christ's need for prayer. B, the content of Christ's prayer. And C, the results of Christ's prayer. So let's get to it. Christ's need for prayer. Then Jesus went with them to a place called Gethsemane, and he said to his disciples, Sit here while I go over there and pray. <clears throat> Gethsemane means oil press. It seems like a play on words. That it is this oil press, in this place called oil press, 
that Jesus was severely pressed by the weight of the sins of his people and the imminent cup of wrath coming to him from his father. This garden was a place that was frequented by Jesus and his disciples. We read in John's Gospel uh, 18.2, Now Judas, who betrayed him, also knew the place, for Jesus often met there with his disciples. So when Judas comes to betray Jesus, he knows exactly where to find them. This was a place that they frequented often. That Jesus would go off by himself and pray was nothing new to his disciples. They were used to that. He had been doing it all throughout his earthly ministry. We're reading Luke's gospel. They oftentimes had to search for him because he went off into uh, places that were alone, out, out away from people. Matter of fact, Jesus put so much emphasis on his personal prayer life that that was the request of his disciples. Lord, teach us to pray. They didn't say, Lord, teach us to preach. Teach us how to cast out demons. Teach us how to raise the dead. No, teach us to pray. They recognized that Christ's strength was intertwined and inseparably joined to his prayer life. And taking with him Peter and the two sons of Zebedee, he began to be sorrowful and troubled. You know, that he would take these three disciples as not, nothing new as well. The, the disciples were used to that. We see that several times throughout the gospel accounts where uh, Jesus would take these three in the, into the home of Jairus when he raised Jairus' daughter from the dead. He brought these three. On the Mount of Transfiguration, when he revealed to them his glory, he brought these three. In the Olivet Discourse, now we have an exception to that, he brought these three, but Andrew was with them when he was giving his discourse there about, excuse me, answering their questions about when these things will happen and when is the end of the age. And so it's no surprise that he takes these three. I think he takes these three because he's hoping, he's, he's needful of of companionship he's needful of of human of of support here he's he's really getting put through the ringer here and in his humanity he needs human contact and so he takes his three trusted disciples then he said to them my soul is very sorrowful even to death remain here and watch with me Wow, just not very long ago, he had said, let not your hearts be troubled. And now he says, my soul is very sorrowful, even to the point of death. It's like, this is killing me. If we could say it like that. Have you ever been there before? Just in a situation or or, or an anticipation of a situation that you dread and it's just 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 tearing you down it's just squashing you down that's what Jesus is facing here but much greater than you and I can ever imagine why was Jesus severely troubled I mean he has all along been telling his disciples this must take place that's why Peter rebuked him. I, I will go to Jerusalem. I will be mistreated by the, the elders. and I will be handed over to the Gentiles. And I will be crucified. He had told them over and again that he was going to be killed. And the method by which he was going to be killed. Remember, even when he was talking to Nicodemus. As the serpent was raised up in the wilderness, so must the Son of Man be raised up. He was talking about his crucifixion. So why now? Why, when the hour has come, is Jesus like this? It is reduced to a fearful mass of quivering flesh. <clears throat> now I'm sure in his humanity, Jesus knows the horrors what the horrors of crucifixion are. 
and I think it would be natural to be afraid. However, I don't think that's what's in that's not what's pictured here. Okay, that is not what is pictured here. Bishop Ryle writes, "Thousands have endured the most agonizing, agonizing sufferings of body, and died without a groan, and so no doubt might our Lord. But the real weight that bowed down the heart of Jesus was the weight of the sin of the world." which seems to have now pressed down upon him with unique force. It was the burden of our guilt imputed to him, which was now laid on him as on the head of the scapegoat. How great that burden must have been, no human heart can conceive. End quote. The spotless Lamb of God was about to take away the sin of the world. And how did he do that? Every single last one of your sins, of my sins. It, it, if it was just God's people here in this room, that would be great enough. But it was the sins of all of God's people for all time. From the fall in the garden till the second coming of the Lord Jesus Christ. Every sin that his people has ever committed. Every vile thought. Every blasphemous word. Every cruel action. Everything that's not done in faith is sin. Paul says for our sake he made him Jesus who knew no sin to become sin for us that in him we might become the righteousness of God. What was Jesus sorrowful about in the garden? We could point out a lot of physical things. But he was sorrowful. He was troubled because as the second person of the Holy Trinity, he knew what was coming. And I'm sure he felt that in his humanity. Because I don't think we can separate the humanity from the divine. That's the mystery of the hypostatic union, is it not? You know, there's a reason why James says the devils believe and they tremble. They don't understand as much as Christ did, but they understand a lot better than you and I what the wrath of God looks like. And if we could even have a small picture of that, that would change our whole outlook on life. There are so many atheists and people that don't believe in God. They don't believe that there's a day of wrath coming. And I'm here to tell you, your opinions, your beliefs, do not in the smallest way change God's reality. And Christ knows that. And He knew that here in the garden. He knew the reality of the wrath that was coming on Him for His people. There is nothing more fearful than the wrath of God. You can't imagine something that's worse than that. You could take all the horror films in the world. You can take all the atrocities that's happened since this planet has been. And you can't imagine, even then, the horrors that the lost will suffer under the wrath of God. But Jesus knew. He knew what was coming. It wasn't the cross that terrified Christ. It was the vileness and utter horror of our sin being placed upon the spotless Lamb of God. Jesus Himself had never sinned. God cannot sin. So in the sense, He didn't know sin. He did not experientially know what it was like to sin. Jesus knew what it was like to be tempted so that would tell you one thing. Being tempted is not sin. It's when you give in to that temptation, that's when you sin. Christ never gave in to the temptation. And by the way, what do you think is taking place right now in the garden? 
He's being tempted to go away from the will of God. He's being tempted by the weakness of the flesh. It's no, it's no just arbitrary thought that Jesus tells Peter, the, the, the spirit is willing but the flesh is weak. Christ in his humanity is experiencing that weakness. Weakness is not sin. Weakness is not sin unless you let that weakness cave you in. And when you give in to that weakness, it becomes sin. And so all... This is not like the sin of Adam where, where they sinned in eating one piece of fruit. This is all the sins of all God's people. Now that one sin of Adam... That was enough to incur God's wrath for all eternity. Can you imagine now the weight of sins of all God's people? And so Jesus tells them, My soul is troubled even, even to the point of death. This is killing me, and it's going to kill me. And going a little farther, verse 39, he fell on his face and prayed. And we come to the, we've seen the need for Christ's prayer. And now we're going to look at the content of his prayer. He fell on his face and prayed, saying, My Father. Now, you know, we don't get the, we don't get the gist of this, I don't think, because it's a, one verse and then. He goes back to his disciples, right? But we'll see that, that, that he wasn't just, he didn't just pray a short little prayer and then, and then went back to his disciples. Why did he ask Peter, you could not watch with me one hour? This is an agonizing time. We don't know if it was a, an actual hour. But this was a time of Christ pouring out his heart in agony to his heavenly Father. If it is possible, if it be possible... Let this cup pass from me. Nevertheless, not as I will, but as you will. Jesus, I think, by saying, if it is possible, he's acknowledging the omnipotence of his Father. Because if there's any other way, his Father, being omnipotent, can do it. But of course, we know that in the redemption in the, in, the, in the covenant of redemption, this was the only plan. There was no plan B. Amen. This was the only plan. If it be possible, he says. I, I like in Mark's gospel, he says, Father, all things are possible for you. He's acknowledging the omnipotence of his Father. There's nothing impossible for you. Remove this cup from me. He's, that's a request, not a command. Yet not what I will, but what you will. Jesus has more than once said that he has come to do the will of his Father. What has him so afraid? Well, I think we've seen that a bit already. But to, to really get a picture of what has him troubled, what has him afraid, is we must ask what is in the cup. The cup is what he's being asked to remove from him. So what is in the cup? This is important. Even for you young children, you should be able to know this. When somebody asks you what was in the cup that Jesus was trying to avoid, it wasn't Kool-Aid. It wasn't some poison mixture. It wasn't sour milk. It was the very wrath of God. There are generally two ways in which the cup is symbolically viewed in Scripture. And this, of course, was not a literal cup. This was a symbolic, the cup of God's wrath. And that's one. God's wrath is, is portrayed symbolically in a cup. And God's salvation is also symbolically portrayed in a cup. Wake yourself, wake yourself, stand up, O Jerusalem, you who have drunk from the hand of the Lord the cup of his wrath, who have drunk to the dregs the bowl, the cup of staggering, Isaiah fifty one seventeen. 
Again, Jeremiah 25, 15. Thus the Lord, the God of Israel, said to me, Take from my hand this cup of the wine of wrath and make all the nations to whom I send you drink it. And that's two examples in Scripture where we see the cup of God's wrath. And we also have that picture in the book of Revelation, do we not? Several times in the book of Revelation about the cup of God's wrath. And people being stomped on, as it were, the wine press of God's wrath. <coughs> but the cup also in Scripture simulates, or symbol, excuse me, not simulates, symbolizes God's salvation. Psalm 116, 13, I will lift up the cup of salvation and call on the name of the Lord. Again, in Matthew 26, which we looked at last Lord's Day. And he took a cup, and when he had given thanks, he gave it to them, saying, Drink of it, all of you, for this is my blood of the covenant, which is poured out for many for the forgiveness of sins. We see in the cup a symbol of salvation. I would submit to you here, it's the first cup that Christ is afraid of, not the second. It is the cup of God's wrath. <coughs> it is not the cup of God's salvation. And in that, there is a lesson to be had, dear ones. I want you to hear this very carefully. I want you to take this to heart. We cannot be partakers of the cup of God's salvation as long as there is still the wine of wrath in the other cup. We cannot be partakers in the cup of God's salvation while there is still the wine of wrath in the other cup. Jesus, as much as He wanted another way if possible, knew that He must drain the cup of wrath to the very last drop. If there was to be any salvation for the chosen people whom the Father had given to Him, this was His mission, to drink the cup of God's wrath on behalf of His people. And dear ones, He did. And so we can and do partake of the cup of God's salvation because of Christ. In the model prayer in Matthew's Gospel, Jesus had taught on the Sermon on the Mount, one of the petitions in that prayer was that the Father's will be done on earth as it is done in heaven. In other words, as it is perfectly accomplished in heaven, so the petition is that it will be perfectly accomplished in this earth, in this world. Nothing can ever happen to us in this lifetime, dear ones, that will even begin to compare or bring about the agony which Christ suffered in the garden in which He would suffer on the cross. And yet, that was His petition. Father, not my will, but Yours be done. On earth, as it is in heaven. Jesus didn't just say that as an example to us. He prayed that for Himself to the Father. To strengthen Him, to carry out the Father's will. To be perfectly obedient to the Father's will. To the covenant of redemption. Covenanted by the Father, Son, and Holy Spirit before the earth was created. And eternity passed. This great covenant of redemption. Dear ones, we are, we are called to follow Christ's example of His undying love and His unyielding obedience to the will of His Heavenly Father. We ought to give Christ that same devotion as we seek to obey Him and to do His will here on this earth. Because guess what? It is the will of God in heaven. 
And he came to his disciples and found them sleeping. And he said to Peter, So, could you not watch with me one hour? Watch and pray that you may not enter into temptation. The spirit is indeed willing, but the flesh is weak. I have heard this particular phrase pulled out of this verse and being so grossly misused. It's pitiful. Before I was a Christian, before I was regenerate, before the Lord saved me, I was a godless heathen and I did a lot of bad things. But I remember one time I had a friend who who was a Christian, he claimed to be, who would do things when we were deployed that I wouldn't do. As a godless heathen, I would not do those things. And I confronted him. And I said, insert the name there, because we're on Facebook, I won't say it. And he's still alive. You say you're a Christian. Now, I was raised in church. I'm not a Christian. But I know better than to do those things. Why, do you, why are you better than me? You're not better than me. You're worse than me. Because you say you're a Christian. What's your excuse? What did he say? The spirit is willing, but the flesh is weak. Jesus is not here giving his disciples or anyone else a license to sin. That's not what he's talking about in this verse. That's not what he means when he says the flesh is weak. He's not talking about our sinful nature. He's talking about our human abilities. As, as, as we uh, look inside, as we try to do things in our own power, we fail. And that's what he's warning against. Peter, you can't do this under your own steam. You, you can't just plod through life putting one foot in front of the other, relying on your own strength. What was Jesus doing? Was he facing the cross relying on his own strength? He was pouring out his heart to God. He was in earnest, heartfelt prayer to God. And he exhorts his disciples, Peter, namely, but the other two, he exhorts them to do the same. Notice what he doesn't do. He doesn't tell them, please pray for me. No. Pray for yourselves. What what had he told Peter? What would Peter do three times this very night? Deny him. How many times will Christ come back and find them sleeping when they should be praying? Three times. Consequently, how many times does Christ question Peter in John chapter 21 of his love for Christ? Three times. I think they all tie together. But that's not what this passage is about. This passage is not about Peter. This is not about the sleepy disciples. This is about the agonizing Lord. Agonizing in the garden. Jesus himself was engaged in a fierce struggle with the temptations of the hour, and yet he prevailed because of prayer. He addresses Peter and says, If you are going to prevail as you have boasted to me twice tonight that you said you were, it will be through prayer. Watchful prayer. Dear ones, we can take a lesson from that. If we are going to defeat the wiles of Satan, it will be through watchful prayer. When the Apostle Paul writes, No temptation has overtaken you that is not common to man. God is faithful. And he will not let you be tempted beyond your ability. But with the temptation, he will also provide the way of escape that you may, not, that you may be able to endure it. That's in 1 Corinthians 10.13. I believe Paul has in mind prayer here, at least partially, as one of the means of grace that God has given us to be able to thwart the, the desires and the attempts of Satan on us. He does list that in the armors, right? All prayer. All prayer. Watchful prayer. It is most certainly what Jesus is saying to Peter here. Peter, you're going to be tested. You must, you must watch and pray if you are to stand firm. And then we 
Keep going. Again, for the second time, he went away and prayed. My father, if this cannot pass unless I drink it, your will be done. Notice the emphasis shift in this second part of his prayer. He shifts the emphasis to the divine will of his father. The first time he said, if it's possible. This time he says, if it's not possible, your will be done. Okay. He's resigning himself. He's through prayer. He's resigning himself to the will of the father. Prayer doesn't change God. Prayer changes those who pray. And you can see that it's changing. His, his, his focus is shifting now. Not from getting out of his mission if possible, but since it's not possible, resigning himself to the will of God. It's changing him, even here in the garden. It's strengthening him. We read in Luke's gospel that angel comes to strengthen him. What, after he finished praying? No, while he was praying, so that he could continue to pray. I'm getting ahead of myself a little bit. But so now the focus is, is shifting. His his he's he's being slowly strengthened through prayer, through the power of the living God, to resign himself, to resolve, to steel resolve to, to accomplish his mission and perfectly do the will of his father. Again he came and found them sleeping, for their eyes were heavy. Once again, for the second time, he finds the disciples sleeping. And of course, when we read in the Harmony of the Gospels, Luke tells us why they were sleeping. He says they were sleeping from sorrow. Has that ever happened to you? Have you ever been afraid of something? And you just are exhausted from fear? And you go to sleep? used to do that when I was young in the army, jumping out of airplanes, and we had a long flight before we jumped. That's the worst part of the anticipation. And so you would look around, and almost everybody in the airplane would be sleeping. It's like, hopefully, if this gets over with quickly. You know, you hope sometimes that when you wake up, the situation will have changed, and more often than not, it doesn't. These, these men were exhausted. They were, they were sorrowful. Jesus had said, I'm going away. And even though he exhorted them, let not your hearts be troubled, and gave them many wonderful promises, they were still sorrowful. And they, rather than watch and pray, they slept. They gave in to the temptation to sleep when they should have been praying. So leaving them again, he went away and prayed for the third time, saying the same words again. Now Christ resolved to do the will of his Father. And we see that. There's a calm in Jesus' voice now when he goes back and he tells his disciples, sleep and take your rest later on. See the hours at hand, and the Son of Man is betrayed into the hands of sinners. Rise, let us be going. See my betrayers at hand. Why do I say there's a calm in Jesus' voice here? Because he's not trying to rouse his disciples up so they can flee. Quick, guys, here they come, let's go! No. All right, this is my time. Get up. They're here. Christ is ready to complete his earthly mission. He wakes the disciples and warns them that the time has come, his betrayer is at hand. The contents of Christ's prayer had been that if possible, the cup be removed from him. But Jesus was very careful to acknowledge and obey the will of his Father. And his prayers were heard and answered, not in preserving his life, but in raising him to glorious, victorious life three days later. Because his mission was perfectly accomplished. And that brings us to the results of Christ's prayer. The results of Christ's prayer. I'll try to speed this up a little bit so we don't go too much over one o'clock. <laughs> one of the results of Christ's prayer was that, as we saw in Luke's gospel, he was strengthened by an angel. 
And like I said, Luke's gospel doesn't say that the angel came to him after he was done praying, right before the people got there and strengthened him, was after his first prayer. And, and immediately after the angel strengthens him, Luke describes for us the, the, the fact that he was sweating great drops as of blood. So this angel came to strengthen him to, so that he might continue in his prayer. God is answering his prayer. His father is answering his prayer in the midst of his praying. Have you ever started praying and, and it just you just couldn't pray and you were struggling and then all of a sudden it just started flowing and, and, and it was like you were being strengthened by the spirit of the living God to pray to your father in heaven. Jesus was strengthened to continue his prayer. One of the, 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 another result was perfect obedience. Jesus got up from his third time praying with an unyielding resolve to do his Father's will. Nothing. I, I guess you could say he set his face as a flint. He was, he was going to do this. There was nothing in heaven and earth that would stop him from accomplishing his Father's will. Philippians 2.8 tells us, And being found in human form, he humbled himself by becoming obedient to the point of death, even death on a cross. That was the result of his prayers, his, his perfect obedience. Another result, perfect peace of mind perfect peace of mind we read in isaiah 53 7 he was oppressed and he was afflicted yet he opened not his mouth like a lamb that is led to the slaughter and like a sheep <coughs> that before its shears is silent so he opened not his mouth he had perfect peace of mind he didn't see the need to defend himself before pilate or the sanhedrin he didn't see the need to, to allow his disciples to fight back and to rescue him. He didn't even feel the need to call on his father to send 12 legions of angels. He was resolved and he had perfect peace of mind and soul in this resolve. That was a result of his prayers in the garden. And then we see perfect love. Perfect love Pastor Thomas mentioned this last week John chapter 13 now before the feast of the Passover when Jesus knew that his hour had come to depart out of this world to the Father having loved his own who were in the world he loved them to the end only perfect love can do that the disciples had failed Jesus but he would not fail them the disciples had failed to watch with him, but Jesus would never fail to watch over them. The disciples would temporarily abandon Jesus, but Jesus would keep his promise to never leave them nor forsake them. And the Apostle John writes, By this we know love, that he laid down his life for us, and we ought to lay down our lives for our brothers. The results of Christ's prayers that God was God's will was perfectly done on this earth as it was done in heaven. The eternal covenant of redemption is fulfilled. Christ will win the war. God's elect will be redeemed. And that is the result of Christ's prayer in the Garden of Gethsemane. In our passage today, we have been given a picture of just how vile our sin is. How Christ was spiritually and physically crushed under its awful weight. And how Christ found relief in prayer. Christ once again defeated the temptations of the hour by earnest prayer to His Heavenly Father. And praise God he perfectly obeyed the will of his Father. Remember I said it before. Because Christ drained that cup, we can now partake of the cup 
of salvation. And we do. The disciples once again failed their master, but he would not fail them. And dear ones, he will not fail you. If he is your Lord and Savior, if you are found in Christ, he will never fail you. He is faithful. Regardless of how faithless you are, he is faithful. Friend, if you still have not repented of your sins and placed your faith and trust in Jesus Christ, you're still on the losing side. You see, Jesus came to seek and save that which was lost. Jesus accomplished his mission. And if you do not trust Christ, you have only God's wrath to look forward to you. And if you persist in your rebellion and you die in your rebellion, you will drink the cup of God's wrath for all eternity. Why would you perish? Avail yourself of this wonderful Savior. Flee to Christ. Flee to Him in repentance and faith. God's Word tells us, For God so loved the world that He gave His only Son, that whoever believes in Him should not perish but have eternal life. The times of ignorance God overlooked, but now commands all people everywhere to repent. Believe in the Lord Jesus Christ and you will be saved. The time is fulfilled. The kingdom of God is at hand. Repent and believe in the gospel. Flee to this Savior. Flee to this victorious Savior. Rely on Him just as He relied on His Father. Dear ones, Christ in His garden experience has given us the proven formula for defeating Satan's assaults. Prayer. As He exhorted Peter and others so now we are exhorted by his words, watch and pray that you enter not into temptation. And those echo the very words in the model prayer, petitioning God, lead us not into temptation, but deliver us from the evil one. It's prayer, watchful prayer, dear ones. In Christ, we can and will have the victories. I close with these encouraging words about our victorious Jesus. Listen, lift up your heads, O gates, and be lifted up, O ancient doors, that the King of glory might come in. Who is this King of glory? The Lord, strong and mighty, the Lord, mighty in battle. Lift up your heads, O gates, and lift them up, O ancient doors, that the King of glory might come in. Who is this King of glory? The Lord of hosts. He is the King of glory. Selah. Let's pray. Holy Father, we, we are in anguish of soul, Father, as we contemplate what our vileness, our sinfulness has done to our Savior and how it, it virtually crushed Him in the garden, spiritually, emotionally, physically. Help us to see in this the vileness of our sin. Help us to flee to Christ. Help us to beg each and every moment of every day for the grace of repentance and for the strength to resist the evil one. Your word promises us that if we submit ourselves to you, the evil one will flee from us if we resist him. Give us the strength. Thank you for Christ. Thank you for his sufferings on our behalf. Thank you for his victory on our behalf. Father, make this the reality in every heart here today. Father, I beg you that you would take this gospel message and that you would use it to reach the lost. That you would make them new creatures in Christ. Because He became a curse for us. So, Father, I ask that You put in all of us the righteousness of Christ. And You would do this for Your glory and for the glory of Your only begotten Son. And for the building up of Your church. May Your name be praised forever. In Jesus' name I pray. Amen.
you would stand with me now and let's sing hymn number 75. 